following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I, again, am your host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury. A joy to be with you all once again. And this is this is awesome for me right here, right now, to be interviewing this man right here because I've had a few guys that uh, have worked for him in the past. And I've had quite a lot of stories about a company known as NWA Wildside. But he has done so much more than that and helped so many people over the course of his career in the professional wrestling business. He is the one, he is the only, Bill Behrens. How are you, my friend? I'm doing wonderfully. Hope you are. I mean, you know, in the midst midst of COVID, I'm doing wonderfully. Well, that's good to hear. I know it's uh, it's been a rough trot for a lot of people. Um, But, uh, Bill, when we do these interviews, we always start at the beginning and... And I wanted to know, when you were a younger man, uh, how did you become a fan of of professional wrestling before becoming involved in the business? Uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida, basically. We moved down there from the Northeast United States in 1963. And sometime within a few years after that, I stumbled on uh, the Florida Championship Wrestling Program hosted by Gordon Soley. And the first match I saw happened to be Johnny Valentine versus God knows who. But uh, Johnny Valentine was literally beating the crap out of this guy. First thing I ever saw. And Gordon Soley's calling it. And I got hooked just from that. By the way, years later, I found out that the odds are Johnny Valentine was really beating the crap out of that guy. Because that was sort of how he did his thing. Um, But then I became a fan um and would watch as much as i could which basically was the same show over and over using rabbit ears on an old television i could pick up three different stations that carried basically the same show but with different promos and so i watched it over and over and over and uh, learning or being around two things one gordon soley the best announcer wrestling probably ever had um, and two, Eddie Graham, one of the, if not the best bookers wrestling ever had, uh, Eddie Graham, who taught, well, everybody, uh, Bill Watts, <laughs> Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Jarrett, Dutch Mantel, the list literally goes on and on and on and on of his influence on modern professional wrestling, or at least generations of professional wrestling. So I was blessed to be in that environment. And they also presented it legitimately. Um, they were very much tied into amateur wrestling, uh, did a lot with that. So you not only watched wrestling, but different than other parts of the United States, uh, they put over the actual holds being used and gave it greater legitimacy, which I thought um, added to its appeal and still do. I think while we've become more of a stunt show in our business, the realities of professional wrestling are still the foundation that create believability that create suspension of disbelief and create the art form 
Um, the rest of it is pyrotechnics and flat and uh, fireworks. Yeah. And then there's yeah. there's a place for that, but it isn't the backbone of what makes professional wrestling great and makes it an art form. So that's how I got involved. Excellent, excellent. Um, so uh, I also understand, um, yeah, oh, geez, I had it in my notes before and now I've lost it. <laughs> uh, you, you were helping with uh, television, is that correct? Um, yeah, well, my I've had multiple careers. I've had two several decade careers. The first was as what is called a television program syndicator, which meant right, basically yeah. I put TV shows on TV stations back in a time when that was the primary way local stations filled out their schedules. Um, and it was a valuable job. Now it's more of a service job. Uh, because most of the deals are done corporately and most of the stations are owned by a limited number of people. Back when I got in, the stations were in smaller groups and the local people made the decisions. So there were these time periods available and you you put, you know, for various companies that I represented, uh, including Litton syndications that had Jack Hanna's programming, Universal Television, Access Syndication, uh, world sports that did live NASCAR. Um, I did a diversity of things and through my company, Show Business Inc. And while I was doing that, I would occasionally meet professional wrestlers and various wrestling promoters. And accordingly, there became some knowledge that not only was I putting TV shows on, but I was a fan. And so I was sought out by different wrestling people and helped them put their shows on. One of the first was a guy named David Woods, who owned Continental Wrestling, or had bought it from the Fullers, uh, and he also owned a couple of TV stations uh, that he had gotten from his dad in Montgomery and I forget where else in Alabama. So I started with him, uh, was helping Mike Graham with his Florida promotion, Eddie Mansfield with his Florida promotion, and was uh, putting, as I was putting other shows on, I would facilitate putting on wrestling shows. That wasn't making any money. I think Eddie Mansfield is the only guy ever paid me during this period, and I got $100 from him, so it was a big deal. Um, but I put together a wrestling block on what were called the Prime Sports Networks. That was one of the first major things, which was five days a week, what's called a checkerboard, Monday through Friday at the same time period, on what eventually became Fox Sports. Um, wow. And eventually, in 1993, uh, uh, Jerry Jarrett, who I had met at a convention and I guess had kept my business card, called me out of the blue and asked if I would help him get more talents for them to promote locally and primarily for his son, Jeff Jarrett, to promote. And I did. Uh, we signed a deal and the deal would have paid me very well if only Jeff Jarrett was actually interested in being a promoter at the time. But when his dad asked me to call him and I was introduced for the first time to Jeff, who I later worked with quite a bit, um, Jeff wanted to be a wrestler and he told me to tell his dad that he didn't want to be a promoter. <laughs> so at that point, Jerry said, oh, shoot. Well, he actually said something else. But uh, he, he basically said, and I said, you know, we've got a deal. If you pay me what you owe me, this relationship is going to go south very quickly because you'll owe me a lot of money and you're getting absolutely nothing back. And that's never a good deal. 
And he said, yep, you're right. So he said, well, why don't you take the USWA show out of Memphis, the hour version that they use to promote towns and see if you can put it on local stations as you run around the United States the way you do. And I said, okay, fine. And eventually I got it in 60% of the country. And at the time, Jerry said, I will um, help you get paid at some point. That was our deal, a handshake. We had one contract we never honored and a handshake thereafter. Um, and I got the show in about 60% of the United States, which wasn't bad, wasn't great, wasn't bad. And all of a sudden, one day, Jerry called and said, you're going to hear from, I want to say it was Mike Ortman, could have been Bezel DeVito, but one of the two from World Wrestling Entertainment at the time, it was the WWF. Um, and they're going to contract you and they're going to sublet the TV show, put their commercials in it, become the distributor. They'll put it up, they'll get it to the TV stations for us and they're going to pay you. And I said, that's awesome, Jerry. I don't own the show. And he said, yeah, I know, but it's fine. I told you I'd figure out a way to get you paid and I've got to figure out a way to get you paid. So that was my first contract with the WWF and off I went. <laughs> I, I, I just love all this. This is like, <laughs> this is like my favorite kind of uh, stuff to learn about because uh, I, I just don't know about this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I kind of consider myself a historian of things that have happened in wrestling, but there is so much behind the scenes that I just, I really, really enjoy learning about. Um, when, it, when it comes to <clears throat> this stuff, um, you know, with um, the, the syndicated uh, shows and all that, what, what would you say is like the biggest challenges uh, in, in getting um these wrestling shows on, on these uh, different networks around the country? Well, I, there's a now and then kind of uh, answer to that question because the process now is both different and the impact is different than it was then. Um, when I came into wrestling, I was basically TV boy. I was the guy that knew how to get wrestling on TV because I was pretty good at dealing with stations and I could basically say, hey, take the show and people would. And since I wasn't picky where it aired, um, we were able to get distributions and that continued for quite a while and it, it ended up literally leading into what became the success and the marquee of NWA Wildside eventually last until 2005 when that went out of business. But back then, and you have to think about the timetable of all this, I talk about 1993, starting actively uh, getting a lot of wrestling on through 2005. During that period of time, cable, there was no satellite, there was no direct TV, there was no dish, there was no sky, uh, those kind of things that exist now, none of that existed then. Where there were these gigantic C-band dishes that people had in their backyard where they could pick up uh, feeds off of various satellites that were being sent to the stations to be put on TV. And that was pretty much the only satellite that you could get as a consumer. So that didn't exist. Cable, on average in the United States, was in anywhere from 25 to 40% of the marketplace. So cable wasn't a big deal. Pay-per-view had started in 1982-83, but it was still not at the level 
that it would get to by the early 2000s when I got started. So the process was, it was more difficult to get on television because the time periods on local stations were more valuable because there were fewer stations available to consumers in general. So in most markets, with cable in its infancy, you had as few as three to maybe as many as seven or eight in a city like New York of broadcast television stations delivering TV programming. Those were the choices. And it's one of the reasons why wrestling on television was utilized to promote houses for wrestling at live events because the television delivered substantial audiences. USWA, formerly CWA in Memphis, was the number one rated show in the marketplace on Saturday morning, beat everything with ratings and shares in double digits, numbers that today are unbelievable and have not happened or could not happen because of the quantity of stations that are available now. Because then there were five stations in Memphis competing for that audience. And it was impressive that 80% of that audience was going to wrestling. Now in that same time period, with the advent of satellite cable broadcast and the multiplexing on broadcast in in their universe, there are hundreds of options in that same time period. So logic dictates no one program can generate the kind of audience wrestling or anything used to get. So you spend it today, And it's really relatively easy to get wrestling on television. It's relatively impossible to make money with it. Um, Mm -hmm. And in many cases, TV stations would still prefer you pay them to get on, which is one of the things I never did. Uh, I take that back. Uh, When we were putting programming on for Music City Wrestling, NWA Worldwide, Burt Prentice and I did pay the local station, but that was part of his business plan, not part of mine per se. When I went to Atlanta and promoted there, we had multiple stations carrying the show and we never paid anybody. Or or I take that back too, we paid somebody one time and told the guy paying bounced checks and then we didn't do that one anymore. But in general, I never paid anyone, I guess is the best thing I can say. Now you can get on, but if you get a one rating, you know, 1% of the available audience at a time of the people watching TV at the time, that's like, amazing oh my gosh i can't believe you did that if you get you know thousands of people watching a local television wrestling show you should be dancing on air but to try to draw live houses or to try to convince advertisers their great value is very very difficult that's it was a different time um you know, we managed to get lucky during Wildside and got involved in the early infancy of satellite for example in the uk with the wrestling channel uh, where oh, yeah. Wild Tide existed for a period of time. Awesome, awesome. Loving all that. I just learned so much then. So that's that's my favorite part of what I do on this show. Um, I did notice in my research that you spent some time working uh, in with Smoky Mountain with Jim Cornette. Is that true? And do you have any fun stories of working with him? Yeah, Jimmy was always fun. Um, we uh, I, I had met Jimmy... Uh, probably through USWA. I can't remember where exactly I met him, but he also called me out of the blue one day and said, hey, you're helping Jerry, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, can you help us? Because 
we're scrambling to make money here. Rick Rubin wasn't paying all the bills. The, mm-hmm. the rock producer, uh, producer rather was only paying for the TV. So everything else, Corny had to figure out how to pay. And he had made, if you could call it a mistake or the, the nice part of it, uh, he actually was giving his wrestlers weekly guarantees. It wasn't a ton of money. Somebody like the Rock and Roll Express, each of them might make 500 a week. But it was more than most companies that were running the circuit the way he does. And really, there were very few running circuits at that point. Pretty much everybody else had gone out of business. USWA was still running three or four towns at the time. And Corny was running three or four towns at the time. USWA Memphis was the primary market uh, for Smoky Mountain. Knoxville was the primary market. Uh, So I got involved with him basically doing what I started with Jerry, which was putting the show on TV. And relatively the same kind of thing happened where he was able to get you uh, it distributed by WWE, although, they, although this time they didn't pay me. I made a little bit of money off of what were called PI commercials, per inquiry commercials that we put into the show or I, that I acquired. And I, I kept, I think, a 10% cut of those, which was hundreds a month, if that. Corny on one of his podcasts was running through the expenses of one of his big shows. And he said, oh, and there's $3,000 from Barron's for his 1-800-buy-my-shit stuff. So, um, and and I helped in little ways. I went to some of the shows and helped out. Um, uh, I had to deal with minor things like we were almost pulled off TV after New Jack started cutting promos. New Jack, who uh, passed recently and was one of my kids, per se. Uh, Jack, um, of course, cut promos that offended everyone, including African-Americans, as it turned out, since the NAACP asked us to please get rid of him. (laughs) And um, we had Sandy Scott tell them that we couldn't do that because, you know, he had the right to speak his mind. Uh, You know, that First Amendment right we we love to talk about here in the States. And... um, and accordingly, uh, but we had to fix it. So I told Cornette, well, just put up one of those things on the screen that says <laughs> Smoky Mountain Wrestling and these stations disavow all of New Jack's comments and he's going into business for himself and drive safely. So we did, we, we put that up and it got us through that particular problem. So that was the kind of stuff I, I helped Corny with at that time. And we had a marginal involvement at the time with the NWA, although I was not yet a member. I became a member in 98, the end, last part of 1998. And when I was working with Corny was probably what, 95, 96, somewhere around in there. Yeah. So um, that was the sort of the starting point. Uh, and I was still just TV boy, primarily. I wasn't promoting uh, in USWA. I had done some on-camera stuff just because I can talk. And Jerry had a tendency to, if you could talk, he'll put you on TV because talking people are good. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I, in fact, I hosted the final live show of USWA, which was pretty cool. Wow. That's awesome. And yeah, I have to say brilliant idea with the warning uh, beneath uh, New Jack, because people still talk about that today. And uh, we spoke to him about that uh, when we had him on the show last year. So uh, may he rest in peace. Um, I wanted to talk about creating, Music City Wrestling uh, with Bert Prentice, and again, uh, rest in peace for him as well, um, <clears throat> which became NWA Worldwide uh, in 1998. Um, 
What made you want to start a promotion of uh, your own at the time with him? And please, if you can tell us about Bert and, and any nice stories you can share about the man. Certainly. Uh, it was a necessity. So USWA had been purchased by an investment group called the Silker Group uh, after Jerry Jarrett had sold to a guy uh, from Hollywood, California, named Larry Burton, whose name may or may not have been Larry Burton. We do not know to this day. Um, he was sort of an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a conundrum. Um, <laughs> and one of the weirdest, most interesting guys I ever had the pleasure to deal with. Um, and he and Lawler ran the company for a brief period and it was going okay. It wasn't as good as it was because things were changing, you know, at the time. Well, the Selco Group bought and by the way, their former investment prior to buying a wrestling company was in a sewing machine company. So, of course, logically, if you're successful with a sewing machine company, what should be your next step? <laughs> Professional wrestling. Yes, certainly, because they're both the same. And no, they're not. And within three months, these nice people found a way to put a successful company that had been profitable for over 30 years out of business. Um, so one day, the company's gone. And remember, I had this contract. This in, at this time, it was my second contract with WWE because I'd gone for a period of time with Jerry Jarrett to WCW where I'd done the same thing there with their TV and my TV and our TV. Um, but bad, we were back with WWE at this point and I owed them a show and it was Monday and they had to have the show by Wednesday so it could go up on satellite by Friday because it took that lot long to integrate commercials and blah, blah, blah. So uh, Jerry Jarrett said, hey, Bert, Bill, why don't you call Bert? Well, I'd met Bert uh, initially when Jerry Jarrett had originally called me a year or two before asking me to try to screw Bert out of a deal he had with a TV station in Nashville because Bert was trying to put his show on the same station US, uh, USWA was on. And at that time, Jerry Jarrett didn't want that. So my first meeting with Bert was basically screwing him. The second time he was brought in by the Selker group to try to promote local towns. And he was sort of on the Selker side, whereas I was with Dutch Mantel on the Burton Lawler side, which eventually became litigious and eventually led to everybody in the world getting sued. Uh, it was big fun. <laughs> but anyway, I needed the show. So I got to Bert and said, hey, Bert, uh, Jerry Jarrett said we should do this together. Bert said, cool. I said, I need a show now. He re-edited an Ozark Mountain Wrestling show, the company he'd been doing a while before, basically a show with Colorado Kid and Mick Foley wrestling. And uh, we got it out to WWE. Then that Friday, we did our first show live at the Nashville Fairgrounds, started doing every Friday and Saturday in the Fairgrounds, started up Music City Wrestling, and we were off and running, and I was Bert's partner, and the deal was... Whatever he made locally, he kept. And he was responsible for that, which is why he was paying the station to promote his shows where I didn't make any money. Uh, whatever money we made off of the TV, that was still technically mine. I was still the executive producer. I was the executive producer, and I was the one licensing it and sending it to WWE. I kept that money, whatever it was, including the WWE money. So that was our deal. And it worked great. Uh, Bert is or was um, probably the greatest uh, local market, small market promoter in professional wrestling of the modern era. 
And that would include literally up and until several weeks ago. Uh, the man was brilliant. And even as he was dying, he was drawing huge houses featuring a nearly 70, if not 70 year old Jerry, uh, Jerry Lawler still wrestling in the main event um, in major stadiums and uh, was just brilliant. Uh, he also, um, you know, was constantly chasing, uh, uh, chasing dollars, maybe lying a little bit, maybe scamming, uh, maybe finding money marks, maybe uh, running as fast as he can to make a living in wrestling because, well, quite honestly, that's what you have to do if you decide to be purely a wrestling person, which it took me a long time to become, and only I was only able to become because major companies paid me, never because of being a promoter. I am a terrible promoter. Uh, I learned what I can't do well from Bern, uh, and that is I, I am not as shameless as he is. Therefore, I also don't have the work ethic he does when it comes to what's required to draw a house, which is putting up the posters, um, running through the towns, putting in a lot of sweat equity. And then when the crowd is in there, getting every dollar you can out of them. Uh, he was in the most positive sense of the use of this word, a great carny and wrestling came out of the carnivals and Bert was a modern throwback to that kind of promoter. Uh, and his kind will never be seen again, uh, unless our, the world changes again in some fashion where that kind of promoting can really work, but I don't see that happening. Um, the birds of the world can't be replaced impossible all right awesome thank you for sharing that with me that's uh really cool information um so i wanted to start talking a bit about wild side here um and just for those at home who might not know these little facts here uh originally named national championship wrestling in 1997 and owned by somebody named steve martin in december 99 merged with nwa georgia to form nwa Wildside under the ownership of my guest at this time. Uh, so um, <clears throat> please tell me a little bit about this situation. Well, uh, I say I'm a terrible promoter and I learned that vividly by trying to be a promoter. So, <laughs> um, and I didn't get into it naturally. Originally I was helping uh, an idiot book shows a guy named Don Lewis uh, to give you an idea of, of this man's intelligence after failing miserably in wrestling he attempted to create the first professional all-white basketball league under the, under the feeling that whites were being held back in professional basketball by the African-American. Uh, so that, that was Don, uh, an interesting man. Um, but that didn't work out well, as you can imagine, it probably wouldn't. And... Um, but I was called one day by a guy that owned a flea market and he said, hey, I'm doing a show every Thursday. And I got a guy named Bucky Siegler, who had been a jobber for WCW back in the day, booking. I don't like what he's doing. I've heard about you. Will you take over the show? And I went, OK. And we came to a deal that basically involved me not spending any money, which is a great deal. Um, and in fact, I, I didn't in any of my promoting pay rent ever, uh, and yet somehow found a way to fail. Uh, so 
I took over these shows and we were marginally successful. I was learning on the fly how to book. I'd had a little bit of start in booking, uh, obviously working with Bert. And prior to that, I had learned from Dutch Mantel, go back to the beginning of our conversation, who learned from Eddie Graham. So, you know, good, good teacher. Yeah. And, um, and I was doing a good job, you know, creating storyline and making things work. And I was running spot towns as I was running a, a place in Stockbridge, at occasional bought shows. It was sort of a half-ass side business, but I was still TV boy primarily. And I was learning fairly quickly that I didn't, I was going to go crazy if I sustained this. Um, around that time, uh, a guy named Rick Michaels, whose real name is Ray Rawls, showed up uh, on his own initially, uh, got over in a match with um, the Mass Nightmare, Ted Allen, uh, where I told Ted I wanted him to turn babyface in the match and have Rick help him do it as a way for me to see Rick's skill as a heel. And at the time, the uh, uh, Nightmare had been a, had been a heel. So I was basically a way of testing the talent when he came in. It worked very, very well. Liked the way Rick worked, brought him back. Uh, he became a top guy within what we were doing. And uh, he showed up the next time with a, a young guy named AJ Styles, uh, Alan Jones. <laughs> First time I met Alan. And Alan uh, and, and his, his initial reason to bring Alan was Alan had been offered a contract by WCW during a period of time when Chris Canyon was basically being sent by Eric Bischoff to hire every young guy he could find and throw them into the power plant where they could get beat up by Sarge. <laughs> and my, I, consult, I told AJ, my feeling was uh, it was the wrong time, uh, that he would simply go there, get beat up, and whatever passion he had for wrestling, he'd lose. I said, you know, at this point, if you have a chance, and he had, it was clear watching him in the ring, he was going to be great. But he was green, and he had a lot to learn. Um, because young guys all think they're great before they are, because young people think they're great before they are. That's what you are. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're when you are a teenager, you are superhuman, you know everything, and you can barely be taught. Um, and that's when we get wrestlers, usually at the beginning, is when they're at their stupidest, but have their greatest potential. And Alan was one of those. Um, so I told him, don't do it. He didn't do it. Three or four other people were involved. I think the only one that accepted that deal of the group that went in with Alan um, was uh, Jimmy Yang, who was okay. there for a cup of coffee before he was let go and then eventually brought back. But um, next time... Rick came in, he came with Steve Martin, who actually was uh, Chance Williams, was his gimmick name at the time. Steve Martin is actually his real name. No, he is not the famous comedian, nor very funny. <laughs> but, um, and he brought, and Rick also brought his dad. Um, and they brought a gigantic VCR and the VHS tape of one of their shows. And I had told him, I will watch your show. Well. At this particular first time, uh, my assistant at the time uh, decided to go get drunk and was unable to do the support work I needed because he was relatively passed out. 
so while he slept it off in the car, I was uh, stirring cheese and cooking hot dogs, running the door, running the show, and I never watched the show. So everybody but Rick, uh, but Rick Michaels left pissed off. Rick finally convinced them all to come back. I finally did watch the show, liked, really didn't like the show, didn't really like what they were doing. But I loved the fact that they had wired this building in Cornelia, Georgia for television. And all they had to do was plug the camera in and they could record a TV show. Now, it was down and dirty. They still had to edit it. They had to put it together in post because they were trying to use two cameras. The hard cam was direct wired. And then they had a handheld. They weren't doing live switching because that would have been brain surgery and cost a lot of money. So they were taking it into post and putting it together down and dirty using an old school VHS video video editor. Um, but it was coming across okay. Uh, I just didn't like the content. They were doing old old school Southern, but because Steve Martin in particular was a big fan of ECW, he was doing a Southern ECW ripoff where no matches is made worse by adding a table or by bleeding or by doing something stupid <laughs> without any setup. Just, you know, it's Tuesday, somebody needs to get color. Um, so I came up with a deal, which is let's get into a 50-50 partnership, very similar to my Burt deal. I'm the TV guy, you keep all the money at the gate and off we go. Uh, and we would, I said, I don't wanna do NCW. I don't like the idea of some show out of Cornelia, Georgia being called national. We're not. Even though I'm going to put it on, I part of the deal was I'm going to take this show and I'm going to put it on where NWA Worldwide is. So they're going to get the 60% of the country. I did a separate distribution on a lot of the stations for the show that Bert was doing because I was technically still involved. But I sort of raped that because, again, Bert made his primary money locally. So him, the distribution was nice, but it didn't make any, any money, really. It was more just sizzle, not steak. Whereas Steve Martin and Rick Michaels were all into, we're going to be the third largest TV distribution in the United States, which is what we were at the time and what Wildside became. So that was the deal. And I said, I don't want to be national championship wrestling. I want to use the NWA brand. They agreed because I was an NWA member and at the time vice president. Um, and, uh, I want to change the name and Burt Prentice came up with the name Wildside. And I liked Wildside because Wildside could be from anywhere. Wildside could be anywhere. Wildside wasn't saying it was, uh, we didn't ever have a world champion. We had a Wildside champion. We weren't trying to be more than what we were, which was the best Wildside we could be. And I, I always thought that was a better way to go as an independent company than being Southeast Championship Wrestling and present your world champion. It, <laughs> it makes no freaking sense. To this day, it makes no sense when an indie has a world champion. You aren't a world promotion. You're a little shitty indie. So yeah. be that guy. Be the best you can be as that. And that was how we got started. Through the time... Uh, I couldn't stand working with Steve. His philosophies and his dedication were fleeting at best. Uh, eventually, I bought him out. And about 
two plus years in, or at least by 19, sometime in 1992, I was the sole owner till the end. Until then, I had to put up with Steve, but I took over the booking relatively early and transitioned from Southern half-assed ECW to work rate, focus on younger talent, um, modern indie before its time wrestling. We, we were Ring of Honor before Ring of Honor became Ring of Honor because it didn't get started until 2002 and we were already doing it. Um, did we do a little bit of the high spots ECW got popular? Of course we did. Everybody ripped those off. Were our guys wearing Hardy Boy pants because, you know, we had seen them on the indies and then in WWE? Yeah, most everybody was at the time. So there was some derivative nature to Wildside, but we also became a starting point for what became the next step um, that indie wrestling was taking at the time, first in the United States and then eventually internationally. Right. Awesome. Yeah, I remember uh, I must have been 13, 14 years old. I had no way of accessing watching any of Wildside, but I always read the results on lordsofpain.net every week. I always And I would always look at these names, wondering who these people were. Uh, and I'm going to get to some of those names in a minute. Um, but I also wanted to ask about uh, being developmental for WCW for a period of time there and, 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 and how that all came about. I had met Terry Taylor because he had uh, worked in Nashville and I had interacted with him when he was working with WWE in the talent relations department because I was always tight with talent relations at WWE, um, literally up and until I guess Mike Bucci lost the spot. Um, and then how they did business changed and my influence became less, but I had a, a decent amount. I booked a lot of extras. In fact, when Tommy Dreamer was in the office, he basically punted that to me because he didn't like doing it. So, you know, that helped me and I had become known as a developer of talent and a booker more than a promoter by then. Um, so in 2001, uh, they had been doing like a half-assed development thing with Bert and uh, long and short, Bert screwed it up uh, by probably keeping money he shouldn't have kept again, you know, chasing his tail like he did. And uh, they were looking to replace Bert and they went and looked at Les Thatcher's Heartland Wrestling and came and looked at what we were doing. And that would have been Terry, who had been there before. He had actually performed for us before. Um, and J.J. Dillon, they both came in. They looked at what we were doing. And um, for some reason, they liked what we were doing more than what Les was doing, which always amazed me because Les Thatcher's awesome. And um, part of it, I think, obviously had to do with the fact that we were relatively local. We were 60 miles up the road from Atlanta and they wanted us to give their power plant stars, a lot of whom they had on TV, uh, an opportunity to get more ring time so that their experience wasn't being generated at house shows in front of their crowds where the mistakes were in front of their crowds. Better their mistakes be in front of our crowds. Yeah. So uh, I changed the structure. I did a deal with them where basically I was paid on an incentive basis based on the quantity of people they booked with me and the quantity of shows we did that allowed them to book people with me. So unlike their previous deals where they had given guaranteed money to the people, my money was a, a minor guarantee 
and then a greater amount of money based on the shows we promoted. So we went from doing the one show every other week we had been doing to create TV to doing as many as five shows a week at one point when we had WCW involved. And the side benefit to myself, Steve Martin, Ray Rawls, uh, Andrew Thomas, who's now a, um, a director producer for AEW, um, who had been my editor prior, gotten to TNA and editors now as AEW. We were all doing shows because not only did we get WCW talent for free, but I shared a percentage of the revenues I was paid per talent with each of these guys that promoted shows. So I was able to share the wealth within the wild side system at the time. And, and you know, so we were able to have three count as our tag team champions for a period of time. And, w, and WCW uh, had no problem with us beating their talent. Although their talent sometimes had a problem with that, part of the lesson was do what you're told. And you're not as big a star as you may think you are. I mean, we had, you know, Bob Sapp became a huge star in Japan with us. Um, we had Tank Abbott, who was given a, a bucket load of money uh, coming out of, uh, of shoot fighting and um, was flown first class to our shows, you know, because that was his deal. And he never understood why he was there, but by God, he had to be there just like everybody else. So we we were able to integrate our crew with their crew and everybody benefited as a result. So um, it was a good experience. Finally, WCW, Eric Bischoff, uh, one day couldn't justify the expense basically. Um, and this was as WCW was tailing out of business and things were going bad quickly. So literally just a couple of months before they went out of business and after we had gotten Air Paris, AJ Styles, Easy Money, two or three other people hired, um, we, were, we lost our deal a few months later. They lost everything. Right. <clears throat> what a whirlwind there. Uh, and uh, I wanted to name drop some people. And, you know, if you have just a couple of sentences about each person here, um, please share your, your, your feelings and thoughts about them. Uh, I'm going to start with a few people I've had on the show before, and I'm going to start with Mr. David Young. Ah, David is great. Uh, David is a wonderful, funny guy, great storyteller, but as he says, um, you, you can't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So, uh, you know, he embellishes, uh, for one. But uh, David came to me when I, uh, through Nashville, and then when I was promoting locally in Atlanta, preceded Wildside, preceded everything, he brought Air Paris to me, who at the time was named Kid Ego. I gave him his Air Paris name. Um, David was with me until basically he stopped wrestling, uh, and he had been around in Georgia before I ever started doing anything in Georgia and was a star already on the indies there. Uh, I was able to enhance that a little bit by over time making him uh, what became either a three or four time NWA world tag team champion with Rick Michaels as bad attitude um, and got him traveling all over the world. Uh, he went to the United Kingdom representing Wildside. He 
traveled to Canada. He traveled to Mexico. We traveled all over the place representing Wildside and representing the NWA during that period of the National Wrestling Alliance. Then eventually I helped him. He was one of the first people signed. Uh, his mindset is he and AJ were the first two. I'm not sure that's 100% true, but it may be. But they were among the early assigned to TNA. After they did a match in Nashville that they had first done in Cornelia that I had set up for them. And they did it exactly the same way there, leading Jer Jerry Jarrett to say is the best match he had ever seen. So um, David I, and I are still in touch on a regular basis. Um, his son used to, Chris used to believe I owned the WWE uh, at one point because I could always get them tickets. And his daughter is married to Anthony Henry uh, one of his daughters is married to Anthony Henry, uh, who was until recently with NXT as Asher Hale. Right. Awesome. Uh, you mentioned his name also, and I've also had this man on the show, Air Paris. Frankenstein. Um, Frankie, uh, again, met him early on. Um, he'll probably hate that I tell this story, but it it's true and it's not embellished. So he brought, first time he brought Frankie in, that was uh, David, brought him into Loganville. Um, I saw he was talented, uh, told him he could not be Kid Ego, particularly as a baby face, which is how I wanted to use him. Makes no sense to be Kid Ego and be a baby face. Also, I'm not a big fan of the word kid in a wrestling context because I always envisioned some 50-year-old guy still wrestling, <laughs> staggering to the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the youthful kid. You know, and it's like, well, yeah, it's hard to be a kid when you're freaking 50. Um, so I changed his name, also changed a kid named Kid Dynamo and told him to, to just be Shannon Moore. Um, so, but Frankie, first time he came in, um, wasn't in, he's always been skinny. He's been in shape skinny. He hasn't been in shape muscle. Frankie uh, knows several people named Jim, but has never been to one until recently. And, um, I, I said to David, um, you know, can we, you know, get some muscle on him, do you think? And David said, well, you know, he is taking steroids. And I said, really? He said, yes, that's why he has the acne. But his version of working out with steroids is he takes steroids, then sits on the couch and watches television. <laughs> Assuming that much like Popeye and spinach, the steroids immediately create muscles. Or if you're Popeye muscles. <laughs> uh, so, but Frankie is another one, uh, between myself and he also became a Nashville regular right around that same time through me. Um, Frankie became, you know, a big part of Wildside, created suicidal tendencies there that, um, launched Jason, helped launch Jason Cross, John Phoenix, Adam Jacobs. Uh, it was one of the first cool factions we had, um, and uh, the cool kids were one of the reasons Wildside was getting over. Um, Frankie was teamed with Cassidy Riley over in Nashville as the Hot Shots, who we also used in Wildside. Uh, Cassidy Riley eventually teamed with Chase Stevens and were in the early TNA time. Um, Frankie was signed to WCW, teamed with AJ Styles there as Air Raid. Um, and then he made the mistake of getting grumpy when he got released, walked away from wrestling to spend his hard-earned money 
running around the United States watching wild, uh, widespread panic concerts <laughs> all over the United States. Um, and only recently actually came back to wrestling and is in better shape than he was back when he was successful in wrestling. So go figure. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. I uh, want to bring up a, a guy I only just spoke to on Sunday, the one and only Masada. Oh, Masada. Awesome. Um, Masada was brought in originally by Rudy Boy Gonzalez, who was the head trainer at the Shawn Michaels Texas Wrestling Academy, where we had also acquired earlier Todd Sexton and Tody Stradlin, uh, who were a big part as TNT of Wildside. And eventually, Tony left for a period of time. He came back for a bit, eventually went to WC, uh, went to uh, WWE Development, where I worked with him again there. But um, Todd, uh, who continues to wrestle and continues to be one of the greats on the local level, a guy that should have uh, made it uh, much farther than he did, but has become, as a result of working with me for so long, one of the best bookers in the state of Georgia, if not the best booker in the state of Georgia, and booked with me um, most of the time uh, after Wildside through NWA Anarchy, uh, booked with me um, everywhere. Uh, uh, we, he and I booked decades together and he's brilliant. But at the time uh, we had him working as a single, Masada came in with uh, Rudy Boy, as did a bunch of people, Hot Stuff Hernandez, um, uh, Lance Hoyt, they, you know, the list of the people Rudy Boy brought in driving all the way from Texas, you know, goes up and down an arm or two. But uh, Masada came in, put him together with Todd and they became the Texas Death Club and had a good run in Wildside also. Um, and Masada always was one of the stiffest guys in the ring. Everybody that Masada worked with knew they were in the ring with him. And of course, he translated a little bit in Wildside because we did do hardcore. I just made sure it made sense because I'm not a fan of the genre. But he became one of the first people that liked to do the slice and dice. Tank is another one who continues to do it that was with us. And of course, he then went to Japan. Uh, started going almost always exclusively into hardcore, innovated the sticking wood sticks in your head spot that has now become <laughs> a go-to spot for hardcore people and has built a career out of that. Um, like I said, not a big fan of the hardcore. I'm a big fan of the fact that he's a good, what a lot of people would like to call strong style worker. And for those who don't know what strong style mean, it really, it means that we're working but you're going to know I'm with you, um, you know, and strong style is what I started with, with uh, that's what Johnny Valentine did. He beat the crap out of you, but he hit you in safe areas, but he really hit you. So it's uh, it's that that gray area between the light work that has become very popular where there's a ton of air and it's hard for fans to believe a damn thing that's going on to hardcore that goes badly in my opinion in the opposite direction which is we're really doing all this stuff to each other we are really cutting each other we are really doing this dangerous stuff but somehow we're living through it um i find that to be the bad part of wrestling even though a lot of people seem to like it but it's still a niche in that it's harder to tell 
a real story if the end game is simply the spectacle of blood, the spectacle of glass, the spectacle of the bumps, the spectacle of the bleeding. It's, it's, it's too much for I hate you, you hate me, we have an issue, we need to resolve it. For me, wrestling is, you know, when there's blood, when there's violence, when there's aggression, it should be the payoff to something. And if it's in a cage, it should be the payoff to something that was set up because the heel runs away and the cage is going to keep him there. Yeah. And now it's going to finally be over. That's my training. My training is, and Eddie Graham was a big purveyor of gimmicks and a big purveyor of blood before it's time. This is the 60s, the 70s, when Eddie Graham was, was booking. The 50s even. Russian chain matches, strap matches, um, Dusty Rhodes cow, with, with the cowbell and the bull rope matches. All these gimmicks were being done back in the day. It isn't something, these are, are all new things. Blood, violence, being stabbed in the head by the Sheik or by Abdullah the Butcher. These things go way, way back. None of this is new, but it was the exception. It wasn't the rule. Yeah. And it was the payoff in most places that were smart, it wasn't the go-to. Even Memphis that did even more. But you have to remember Jerry Jarrett booking Memphis with Jerry Lawler. Lawler brought comedy. Jarrett bought storyline, but he also bought Eddie Graham's teaching that you could go to blood. You could go to aggressive violence, and Memphis was known for that. But it wasn't like San Antonio, where they leaned very heavily into the blood to the extent that it that the show there became called within the boys all scar wrestling, S C A R wrestling, because everybody was bleeding. And that's where Telly Blanchard got his start. Plays things like that. So Masada, give him his due. Uh, Brigham has created a hell of a career for himself out of the hardcore thing. Um, I just still think he could have done the same thing as a straight up moxley kind of wrestler um but he was he was moxley before moxley was moxley because moxley came to us back in the day and he wasn't moxley then he was standard indie guy 12 right interesting um want to bring up a couple more names some names that might not be as uh well known on a, i guess a, a global scale but certainly names that uh, appear to be important to wild sides history iceberg and tank uh, Tank, uh, of course, is having a second life in hardcore wrestling. Uh, now going around the United States with Dan the Dragon Wilson, uh, who's now uh, the Reverend Dan Wilson. Um, uh, and, uh, and Tank is, is hardcore, but a hell of a worker. Again, I was, he came to me as a guy willing to do hardcore, and I made him wrestle. Um, more than he probably wanted to simply because he was good. We called him the strong style psycho. He was another guy like Masada before Masada was Masada that was able to lock up, wrestle a hell of a match and could beat the crap out of you. Um, Iceberg, uh, prior to coming into me, had already been to Japan where he'd wrestled Mr. Pogo or he'd been to Puerto Rico where he'd wrestled Abdullah the Butcher. So he was already a star. He was Iceberg Slim. When he came to us and the first time we brought him in, we put him under the white trash 
and basically had him do nothing but selling. Um, but we realized we had something, so we rested him. Then we brought him back and rechristened him as the being of inconceivable horrors iceberg, put him with Jeff G. Bailey, and gave him a vegetable peeler that was the implement of mass destruction. And he was recreated in that fashion. He also uh, appeared for a period of time in a program managed by Don Callis in TNA in 2002 as Edward Chastain. So he had his moments. He also um, had an awesome spot working security for WWF where he took a uh, unprotected chair shot from Triple H. So uh, both of them did a lot of stuff, but you're right. They got this close to breaking out, but never did. And, and Iceberg would probably be the first to agree. Uh, he created some of the problems and, and they were more I, like he didn't make a tour. I put him on one time. Uh, he didn't do something he was asked to do. Uh, at TNA, at TNA, he basically sold more for um, uh, the Big Wiggle than he should have uh, <laughs> when they wanted him to be a monster, and uh, and that may have cut short some of his opportunities. But uh, uh, Berg is one of our wild side legends and one of the people that defined the company, as was Tank. And for a while, they teamed together, and that continued all the way through. NWA Anarchy, where they were together for quite a period of times, um, up and until maybe a decade ago. Right, cool. And I'm, I'm hopefully going to be getting Iceberg on the show in the next few weeks. Uh, next name I want to, no, only a few more names going to bring up, uh, Slim J. Ray Gordy. Uh, Slim J, uh, again, one of the guys... He started training literally when he was 15 years old, and we put him on TV uh, when he was probably 16 or 17 years old, something I wouldn't recommend people do today for liability reasons, if nothing else. Um, but we did, and he was special from the beginning. Um, he, was in, he was the youngest guy to ever appear on pay-per-view, probably until recently, um, in that he appeared on TNA when he was still a minor. Um, yeah, I think we had his mom's side, or his, his dad's side, mom or dad's side, his dad's side release, his mom had passed. Um, and uh, his original gimmick was that was based on a real thing. He had been arrested when he was young for being in a convenience store in a wrestling mask. Uh, and they had arrested him for, you know, thinking he was going to rob the convenience store. So he'd spent a little time in jail. So when he brought him in, we had a, a guy named uh, Pops who we had wear his actual outfit from the airport because he was a security guy at the airport, which always amazed us because he wasn't the brightest guy on the, in the building. But uh, security Pops used to bring out uh, Slimmy handcuffed. And that's how we got him started as the rebel kid, um, his promos were usually done behind a cage as if he was in jail. And he came out to Eminem and he was a little rebel. Um, and then over time, he became one of the best workers ever developed. He also, like I said, appeared at TNA, uh, was, pay, was the pay-per-view star there, there uh, went to Ring of Honor, 
was part of a, uh, a group there for a period of time, traveled all over the place, and um, he had his own issues, sort of had to take a step back, um, rebuilt himself, got in the gym, made himself a big version of little guy, and until uh, getting a stinger, wrestling as champion for PWX up in North Carolina a couple of years ago, he was on a second run that very likely could have or would have gotten him into AEW where the door was still open for him to do a match. Uh, uh, Stephen Walters, who's now uh, uh, Cash uh, Wheeler there, um, is, uh, was going to, was going to help him get in, uh, but he, was, he just had a baby. So that's been put on the back burner for a little bit while he uh, becomes a professional dad for a while. But at any time, Slim J could show up again and is still one of the best there is. But like AJ, has learned to do less and get more out of it. And Ray Gordy. Uh, Ray came to us through Dan the Dragon Wilson. Um, Dan uh, knew Ray, uh, had met Terry. Uh, up in the Carolinas. I had met Terry years before in Spooky Mountain, but just for a cup of coffee, and um, said that Ray wanted to get out uh, to more than the, sh the shit indies he was doing in, uh, in Tennessee. We brought him in. It was obvious that he had it and uh, quickly made him a junior champion, and he was the final one. Of, he was a, one of the final wild side champions at the very end uh, and grew tremendously to the point where literally the second wild side ended, he immediately moved into development at WWE at Deep South Wrestling, where I went and uh, then got signed full time and ended up with with Gallows uh, up in WWE as a tag team, uh, where he was for a period of time. He's now a police officer, by the way. Uh, he's no longer in wrestling. He's a cop. Right. Thank you for those updates. That's cool. And uh, one other name I wanted to bring up. I'm sure you're very proud of him. Uh, he was once known as K-Crush. I think we all know him now as R-Truth. Yeah, Ronnie, uh, Ronnie was our first star when I got there. He had already been in okay. National Championship Wrestling. Uh, Ronnie had already been in National Championship Wrestling. And right about the time I came in, uh, because again, I was dealing with the WWE office. Terry Taylor told me they were going to sign him to a development deal. They were going to send him to Memphis. He was our TV champion at the time. Um, he, as soon as he got signed, he wanted just to sit home and wait. And uh, I got to Terry and said, yeah, you know, we really need him to at least drop the title. So Terry got on the phone and told Ronnie, no, uh, you need to go work with Bill until I'm ready to use you. I need you to get ring time. So no, you're not going to sit your ass at home. So, you know, first time I met Ron, he, uh, I had been working with him already, but he realized that I guess this guy has more influence than I thought he did since I now have to go work at Wildside as part of my WWF job. So, um, and, and at that time, so he and I got friendly um, he eventually did have to leave us. He dropped the title to AJ Styles. Uh, we had him leave in a cage match with um, uh, with uh, Ruckus, another one of our stars. And he went to Memphis for a period of time, went up to WWE, had a, a period of time with them, but it was a short period left. And the next time I worked with Ronnie is when he was brought in to uh, TNA, where I was, and became the first African-American NWA champion. So uh, I've known Ronnie forever. 
uh, and uh, and now obviously he has a hell of a career and is eternally young. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how he's had like the longest run in the middle of the card at WWE and he's a happy guy for it. Um, you know, he's been getting paid for years. Yeah, cool. And you know what? Like, if, if I could, I could bring up another hundred names that went through NWA Wildside. So many people have gone through there. We could be here uh, all day talking about that. Um, I, I wanted to bring it away from this uh, section to t- just ask you straight up: What is your proudest moment that you had uh, running NWA Wildside? It's in general my proudest moment. Um, in wrestling, which is Wildside helped me learn where my limited skills in wrestling are. Um, you know, a lot of the people in Wildside credit Wildside for helping them learn and for getting them opportunity and give me some of that credit, which is awfully nice of them. What I learned is I, I'm a good booker. I know how to do storyline. I know how to tell stories. I know how to create characters. I know how to make wrestlers better, and I know how to get people hired. And that became my niche. Uh, I came in as a TV guy, so I also was the first guy on an indie level teaching wrestlers how to work television. And that became another thing that I'd learned. So what am I proud of? I'm proud of learning what my skill set was. And that led to me having the two decade career in wrestling I have, not as a promoter, even though I'm frequently called one, but as an agent, as a talent agent, and as a developer of talent, spin forward, my most recent success is Griff Garrison in AEW, one half of the Varsity Blondes, who I took under my wing after he came to a show I was helping at at a small town in Georgia for a company called Peach State Wrestling, did a match, I agented the match, got into a conversation with him. He brought his best friend, Marcus Cross, then to shows I got them booked on for then Anarchy. And um, as I told a crowd later at Southern Fried Wrestling when I debuted them there, I basically started helping those two because I no longer had much to do for AJ Styles because he had signed with WWF, WWE. So, uh, and Marcus Cross, prior to Griffey being signed at AEW, they were in Ring of Honor as Master and Machine and wrestled the Briscoes for the tag titles and had won their last two matches just before COVID hit and would have been signed there. Right. Marcus dinged his knee, had to have knee surgery. Griff went to AEW during COVID, got signed, and now Marcus has done four dark matches and is heading back down there September 11th. So I'm hopeful they will be smart enough to see how talented he is and much like Griff, give him an opportunity. Hopefully as part of the Varsity Blondes, that would be a nice thing. But that's what I learned at Wildside. What, what is my greatest skill? Um, my proudest moment at Wildside is, is, you know, 900 other moments, 900 moments, but you know, the one thing that I always remember the most fond is a match that I was able to build to uh, on a show that had a lot of things I built to, but it was a uh, two-day thing where we brought in uh, the fallen angel Christopher Daniels, who I was managing at the time and still am. Um, 
with AJ Styles, with Dusty Rhodes. Uh, we did a match with all of them. First time Dusty was in the building. It was just, you know, it's one of the matches I can't, I, I can't get through watching the ring introductions today without crying. It was just such a beautiful thing. And, um, and, and, and not as good a match as it, I remember it at the time. You look back on it and like Alter Boy Luke was in it, Luke Hawks, who has grown so tremendously and, you know, stunt coordinator on the Heels TV show and just, you know, tremendously talented kid whose son, PJ, um, uh, is now a great talent and both of them are now in NWA where I'm a producer. It's, um, you know, it's, that it was just, those are the moments and that match crystallized a lot of things. It was AJ coming back, Daniels coming in, the dream for the first time in and he and I were, were, were friendly and all, and Jeff G. Bailey involved and it was the elite versus what was called the God Squad, which was Gabriel, Alter Boy Luke. And of course you Originally, I brought in the fallen angel on the show before to help the God Squad, the angel. But of course, he turned on the God Squad. Why wouldn't he? He's the fallen angel. He joins <laughs> the bad guys, which is the NWA elite. You got to bring in somebody to help out the God Squad. Who better to bring in than AJ Styles, the, the Christian? Who else to put with them than Dusty Rhodes, the American dream? It, you know, it, just, it was just a perfect moment. It was one of those wild side moments. It was 2005, uh, to the end of 2004, right before we went out of business. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. Anytime I get somebody signed is always a great moment. So those were great wild side moments too, um, because I live to get people paid in professional wrestling. I told everyone at Wildside. Uh, I can't teach you to lock up, but I can teach you to be a better wrestler. And I can tell the difference between a star and not a star. And if you've got it, I can, I can help you realize it. And if I can get you signed, you're going to get paid. If I can get you to be a bigger star in the industry, you're going to get paid because you're not going to get paid here. Um, I don't lie to wrestlers. And that was, became my reputation. And I hope it continues to be my reputation. Excellent. Uh, thank you for indulging me with all that. That was great to hear. And uh, I wanted to also ask you, why did NWA Wildside have to close down? Because Vince told me to. Um, we were going to continue it. Uh, it. There was no problem. Well, let me back up. Well, I was the first guy signed to uh, be involved in what became called Deep South and became a clusterfuck. Um, okay. But when I was first signed, the theory was um, I would do the TV and the TV would be done out of Cornelia and it would replace Wildside literally go on the same TV stations. It would be a seamless transition. Things we had developed in Wildside, like the elite, would continue with Jeff G. Bailey. That was the original plan. Dreamer and Fit Findlay came in, looked at the building. Dreamer had been there before. Um, Dreamer came in and said, oh, my God, this place is freaking awesome. If I were still doing ECW, we would want to work out of this building because it's perfect. Vince will hate it. And I said, oh, great. And he said, yeah, Vince, this is perfect, but it's not pretty. Vince is going to want it clean. He's going to want it pretty. He's going to want it his way. I said, okay, fine, we'll go find a building. Well, spin forward, and then all of a sudden, Triple H got involved a little bit, not in a bad way, but it became a bad way, not his fault. 
sort of his fault. Uh, but he wanted to help Jody Hamilton, the masked assassin, who had been in the power plant, created the power plant, but had been basically pushed to the back room. And uh, Orndorff and Sarge had taken over. And yeah. But Joe had been inf influential in helping train um, the guy that became Triple H and started his, I guess, Terror Rising when he first came to WCW. Um, and he, uh, so he owed him. So all of a sudden, Jody's involved. So now it's, okay, Bill will still do the TV. That's his job. And Joe will run a building and will hire a trainer. So the trainer became Billy DeMott. And now we've got three guys who have never worked together. And I'm, at the time, working for TNA in addition to doing Wildside. And I'm still with the NWA. I've got all these juggling things. Mm. And um, so while working for TNA, I'm flown up to a meeting. We had all agreed to a deal. And we had this meeting and we all came to this, yeah, we can all work together. Joe and I had a separate meeting with, uh, with uh, John Laurinaitis, where Joe clearly understood what I was supposed to do, what he was supposed to do, what Billy was supposed to do. It was going to be perfect. It was going to work out great. And we all signed our deals. I even wrote my own contract. and. Um, and of course, once it got started, well, not of course, but it is out. It turned out Joe didn't want to do any of the things he said he wanted to do. Joe wanted to be in charge of everything. He wanted to do the TV. He wanted to write it. He wanted to, you know, and my contract said I was responsible for it. And so I, and, and they did everything they could to get rid of me, basically. The company wanted me to stay. They came in and tried to mediate. It didn't work out. So after three months, after trying to quit several times, I was finally allowed to quit. And I immediately went back to TNA and helped them create a business that brought in $2 million and helped their con their talent get signed to exclusive contracts for the first time. So it all worked out. But as part of that, Vince said, well, if we're not going to do what we had planned to do, even though I don't want to do that, I think if you're still running Wildside, it's a conflict of interest. So you need to put the company out of business. So I did. Uh, and I didn't want anybody to do Wildside. I wanted Wildside's history to be Wildside's history and not my history than somebody else's history. Yeah. So other people took over. I let them use the ring I own, the barricades in the same building, and they created what was called Wildside. I let them use the NWA brand. And they continued, uh, of course, Billy DeMott, and you, if you read his book, he never understood why I was there to begin with. And even in his book, he points out, you know, this guy came in saying he had done all these hours of TV, like he was a big deal and like they had hired him for that. And well, yeah, that is why they hired me, Billy. That's exactly why. That's why I'm here. But he never understood. He never knew what I had done because I wasn't on his radar. I knew mm -hmm. who he was. He didn't know who I was. Jody didn't know who I was. I knew who he was. So to them, I was, who the crap is this guy? Why is he here? And we don't like him. And so did, you know, it was just terrible. Um, and it also caused me to put Wildside out of business, which I regretted. But then over time, it was the right time for the company to go out of business. It, it, it had reached, we had reached a peak. I don't know that we would have continued to do better. So new things happened. The original Wildside didn't work very well. Um, once I left uh, the nice people at Deep South and it stayed around for another year and a half or so, 
got a reputation as being terrible, um, led to numerous lawsuits and other things, and finally was put out of its misery, and everybody went up to Ohio Valley, and the rest is history. But uh, I went back to TNA, and I went back to Anarchy as the co-booker with Todd Sexton, who we've already spoken about, who had yeah. taken over as booker, and that continued for years until I left for a period of time and booked a company called Rampage that was also with the NWA with me, with Jimmy Rave, another guy we got started at Wildside, who went on to have a little bit of a career. Excellent. Uh, very interesting stuff there. And, and another interesting thing in my research, so we've only got a few more questions here, Bill. Um, September 9th, 2017, uh, there's a reunion show at the Landmark Arena in Cornelia, Georgia, featuring over 50 alumni from the wild side years. Um, were you there for this? I mean, obviously you would have had to have been. And, uh, you know, how, how nice was that to be a part of? Uh, it was a bucket list thing for Rick Michaels, who had had personal issues that had kept him away from life and wrestling for a period of time, but was back. Uh, was on the beginning of his redemption tour and he got to me, we had mended our fences and um, he wanted to do this. Um, and after a postponement because of weather, we, we picked a date, uh, we got together with everybody. I put the card together. Um, Rick basically facilitated the building, the production and, uh, and all of the financing. Uh, I ran the show and booked the show. And uh, so I was able to put together a, as good a tribute to what we did as we could possibly do with the people that were still wrestling at the time and were willing to come in. We had a few people, unfortunately, who no-showed on us that I regret. Jimmy Rave, who was going through issues and is going through some worse issues now, um, having lost an arm recently to uh, uh, an infection caused by drug use. And uh, murder one who uh, couldn't get there, and a hurricane that hit Florida that kept Rain Man away. So we had some people miss our show, but we still had a lot of people there. And by the end of it, uh, we were able to do some really cool stuff. Uh, some of the people showed up and didn't have any ring rust at all. Laz, uh, Caprice Coleman, uh, Adam Jacobs, uh, Seth Delay, Luke Hawks. Uh, Anthony Henry, uh, we, we had a, just a huge list of people that came in and worked their butts off and did a great job. Uh, Mike Posey appeared three different times as himself, as a referee, as Kid USA, as a wrestler, as P-Dog Mike Posey, his new character, only to be chased away by the original gangsta New Jack, who uh, <laughs> always considered Wildside to be a second home and where I kept him visible during a period of time and kept him from killing himself at one point. So, uh, and then we ended the show with a surprise where we had been running videos all night with people that couldn't be there. Uh, Terry Taylor, Sinister Minister, all of these various people that had been part of our history that wanted to be there but couldn't. And we were running this video by another young star that uh, was with the WWE at the time as a champion, AJ Styles, and the audio wasn't working on the video. And I was getting pissed off in the ring until his music hit. And without permission from the WWE, 
under the theory of better to ask forgiveness than permission, because they had actually not given permission when I had asked. He decided to do it anyway. And he showed up and appeared, and that was the ending of our reunion. Uh, and a really fun night for everybody involved. Wow, that is incredible. That That is really cool. I, I, I wish I, I had the opportunity to see that. Um, I uh, I wanted to also ask just for one last question about Wildsider. Is there any potential for like a documentary about the history of the company or anything like that? Or is there one out? I couldn't find anything in my research, but sometimes the internet can be difficult. There isn't a documentary. It's been discussed 900 times. I own all the footage still. WWE has bought pieces of it but has never bought the entire library and they bought it non-exclusively. Um, but they've just bought stuff to use for AJ and stuff to use for Ronnie Killings and documentary things. But um, uh, so I still have it. Uh, various people have come at various times saying they want to do it. Dan the Dragon Wilson talks about it. Jeff G. Bailey talks about it. They're doing a podcast now periodically reviewing uh, the history show by show by show and are up and in there i think they're into 2001 now in their their version of it they the end of it so people can find that i don't remember the name of it i think it's called walk on the wild side if i'm remembering correctly uh so fans who might want to learn some of the history can go there there's a guy in the uk that was writing a book last i knew and did interviews with a lot of the roster uh, but during COVID, uh, it vanished. He vanished. He's shown up a couple of times saying that he's getting there. He's fixing to do it. Like we say in the South U.S., fixing to do it means you're not quite there, but you're going to get there eventually. So hopefully that'll come out. That'd be nice. But no, it hasn't happened yet. But I, inevitably, with all the things that are being done, uh, I'm hopeful somebody will decide they want to do it. And all I can tell anybody that's out there, I don't want to finance it. Um, but if you want to do it, I will let you use the footage for no charge because I'd love to see it ha happen. So come visit. Everybody wants to do the interviews and please get to us before we're all too old to do it. Or oh. die. Because unfortunately, people are passing away or hurting themselves. And God forbid, I don't want to see any more of that happen. No, of course. Yes, I think it is really important for the history of that company to to uh, at least have something like that because uh, after I'd interviewed, well, whilst I'd interviewed David Young, I think afterward I'd asked him, you know, is there a documentary or anything? Because, uh, you know, it's it's hard for me to kind of like learn about the whole history of it by just Google searching. And uh, you see, yeah, he mentioned the book that this guy is uh, apparently uh, writing as well. So hopefully something uh, will happen one day in the, in the near future, uh, Bill. Um, so uh, before we get done on anything, I do want to point out, I have a great fondness for the nice people in Australia. Uh, I only got a chance to go once. Uh, I've told everyone yeah. that Australia is very much like the United States, except the people are nice. Um, uh, the only other thing that I found that was disconcerting and took me for a while to get over is I ordered French fries and they brought me mayonnaise. And I was totally confused because we don't do that here. We are French fries with ketchup the way God intended. And uh, so those are the things that uh, I remember about Australia, but I had a four city tour with um, Andrew McManus's WWA, appeared yeah. on pay-per-view, uh, refereed a match, 
and um, even had a, a couple of interviews that I did there that appeared in uh, on the internet and I think in some local publications. Uh, but it's one of the few places outside of the United States I'd actually look forward to going back to. Yeah, and so you're welcome back anytime, Bill. And if you make it to my side of the country, I'll cook you up a nice good old Aussie barbecue. Uh, ah, enjoy that. Yes, that and seafood, a tremendous seafood. Oh, of course, the seafood's fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, I understand what you mean with the, the mayonnaise. Uh, I'm not really either a ketchup or mayonnaise guy. I just like a bit of chicken sold on my chips over here, my my French fries. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, another thing that I noticed not long to go here, but it was, I think it was only a month ago, uh, 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 a show uh, for a company called SHW, uh, and it's a it was a rumble rumble jack. I, I I found footage of you entering a rumble, hitting a few people with a tennis racket, and then delivering a stunner. I could not believe my eyes. <laughs> how, actually, how, how was that? <laughs> yeah, I've actually wrestled more matches in my sixties because I'm almost sixty five. I've wrestled more matches in my sixties than I did between my 40s and 60, uh, where my highest profile match was wrestling for the North American title against the Colorado Kid in Nashville in the semi-main event. Uh, I want to claim that I drew that entire sold out house. However, the main event was Flash Flanagan versus Al Snow. So Al wants to think he's the one that drew the house. He's wrong, but uh, it th that was the best I had done. But for some reason, I keep getting thrown back in the ring. I've wrestled. Uh, at Anarchy twice, uh, both times, once with Matt Hankins, once against Matt Hankins. I, the second time I wrestled as Sting uh, and descended from the roof like, like you should if you're Sting. And then I danced, much unlike Sting. Uh, and then I've wrestled several times at uh, Southern Fried Wrestling uh, in a, a six-man tag, uh, teaming with Master and Machine one time. And then I wrestled... Um, Rick Michaels once, I think there. No, I wrestled Rick Michaels at Peach State, wrestled him also in Loganville, wrestled in a eight-man on uh, Wildside TV early on, uh, teaming with the NWA elite, including AJ Styles. Um, but this one, uh, Southern Honor had been trying to get me in the promoter there, Gary Lamb, um, who's uh, a preacher, sort of and uh, but a good promoter who happens to run the same building and has done fairly well in beautiful canton georgia where i had um uh, been a manager for a match with bad attitude at one time for another promoter this is my time back he'd been trying to get me in um and i've been resisting because i don't really like going to wrestling shows uh, i've told people the only way to get me to a wrestling show is to pay me or give me an award. Um, and they cheated and asked me to be in the Rumble. I had said no. And then Todd Sexton, who helps out there, had asked me to do it. And that was enough. So I did it for Todd. And then when I got there, I asked what they wanted me to do. Uh, and then I came up with the spot, uh, cut a promo on Gary Lamb, you know, just, you know, putting myself over at his expense, basically you know, pointing out that he's a preacher who believes the Ten Commandments are simply suggestions, and then uh, telling the crowd there that from now on, whenever they worship wrestling, the only God that they should worship is me. 
So, you know, stuff like that. By the way, the place doubles as a church. So I was being a little sacrilegious, but what's my point? Um, but I had to do something. I was the first guy getting eliminated. So I'd always, I'd, uh, Jim Corning and I had done a gimmick at one point where he anointed me with a tennis racket. And I'd use that in Wildside for a period of time and then in various other places. So we did the racket thing. And we came up with all these spots and everything was going to work out great, except the first guy I hit as I, when I, I gutted him, uh, Will Caution, gutted him and then hit him in the back and the racket broke. So, <laughs> everybody was so inexperienced in the freaking match, except for Stevie Richards, who was selling, that people weren't feeding. So I had to like wait through these. To me, it was like time was taking forever for people to do what they're supposed to do. So I still did all the spots but they weren't exactly what we had worked out. They were the best I could do with this freaking limp ass racket, um, which you'll see when uh, freaking uh, Michael Judas comes in and you can see me holding the racket up and it's just limp. <laughs> yeah. But it was a fun spot. Uh, everybody seemed to like it. Uh, it got over. Um, you know, so yay me. Uh, that was my last wrestling appearance until my next one. Uh, so with only a few months to go until I am 65, I'm not quite the oldest guy in wrestling, but I'm I'm trying. <laughs> I will say I did enjoy watching it because uh, when I do my research, I'll always do a, a YouTube search as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, so great, great to hear about that, Bill. And but before I get to my final segment, five second frenzy, last question I always ask is, you know, is there anything that you would like to plug? Where can people find Bill Barons on, on social media and all that? Uh, I'm, of course, I've already pointed out I'm old. Uh, therefore, I'm on Facebook. And <laughs> so uh, you can find me there as Bill Barons. I'm on the Twitter as William Barons. I'm on the Instagram, I think, as William Barons also. But I really don't do much of the Instagram, primarily because I don't get it. It's like I try to do Snapchat at one point because... Griffin Marcus told me to do the Snapchat because they were doing the Snapchat. And then they sent me something and it was a cool video that they had done. And I said, wow, that's a cool video. And I watched it and I went to bed and I got up the next morning and I went to look for the video on the Snapchat and it was gone. And I went, what the crap? And they said, oh, well, that's what Snapchat does. It's only there for a second or it's only there for a bit. And then it's gone. And I go, well, that, that sucks. <laughs> that. I'm old. I want to keep things. You know, I still keep, you know, I still print everything out. Come on. So, you know, I'm still, I'm on the social media. Uh, I would encourage people because I'm trying to get monetized on the YouTube. So there is an NWA Wildside channel on the YouTube that does actually have NWA Wildside matches on it. So, G, go figure. You can go watch the NWA Wildside, but it also has. NWA Anarchy, it has Peach State stuff, it has Southern Fried stuff, it has my stuff, it has Griffin Marcus stuff, it has AJ stuff, it's got a bunch of stuff. And I'm still, I've got plenty of subscribers, but could always use more. I need more viewing hours because it's a bitch to get monetized on the YouTube. So yeah. please help me get monetized on the YouTube so that I can get money because I'm old and I need money. So <laughs> that's that one. Accordingly, the same thing. IWTV, Independent Wrestling Television, that has a whole bunch of great indie stuff. There is a wild side channel there. So if you subscribe to IWTV, and if you don't, you should. It, they've like everything is there. The world is there. If it's not on Fight TV, 
by God, it's on IWTV. They've got everything, including Wildside. So go there. Everything from 1999 through 2000, every TV show and all the big shows that I have available, all of those are there. And the final show, Last Rites, from 2005 is there now. And I'll be putting more of the big shows up soon. I've, I've held off putting anything new up because there's already a lot up there. So uh, please, everybody, if you're on the IWTV, go visit the Wild Side channel, watch my shit, because then I get paid too. So those are the ones that get me paid. Otherwise, you know, communicate, follow me on the Twitter, follow me. It's hard to find. I've only got like 50 more friends I can get on the Facebook because they limit you to 5,000. But it, if you're not already a close personal friend on the Facebook, give it a shot. That, and that's about all I'm doing on the social media and stuff. Otherwise, I'm trying to get people hired. Very cool. And uh, everyone out there, all of that stuff Bill just talked about in the description there below on YouTube when this goes on YouTube eventually. An apology to all of us uh, suffering through this thing. I live in a house on Lake Sinclair in beautiful Edenton, Georgia, where the miracle of DSL internet. You guys may remember the DSL like 20 years ago. That's <laughs> I mean, I, the fact that I don't have dial-up was a major yay me moment here. So periodically, as I sit here enjoying this, uh, this thing has been telling me, hey, Bill, your bandwidth is low. And I've been saying, yeah, right. Tell me something I don't know. And I don't even have anything else running right now that could steal bandwidth. And it still sucks. So if this has been stopping on you, if you've been seeing frozen images and only hearing our voices, thank you for living through this. <laughs> Excellent, Bill. Uh, final segment of the show here. Five second frenzy, Bill. Five seconds to answer each question. Even if you break the five seconds, it's okay. You won't get in trouble. Uh, quick fire questions, quick fire answers. Your favorite this, your favorite that. Bill Behrens, who is your favorite wrestler? Uh, let's let's say AJ Styles or Griff Garrison now, just because it's the first, the last. Marcus Cross in the middle. Excellent. Uh, you've had a few matches. Who would you say is your favorite opponent? Matt Hankins. Matt Hankins. Uh, he's also my favorite back and forth promo guy. Very talented. If managers got hired, much like Jeff G. Bailey. Uh, he'd be hired. Brilliant. Also a great musician, just a talented guy. Excellent. So the, the next question will be, you know, what would be your favorite match in wrestling history? Ooh, uh, Dory Funk Jr. versus Jack Briscoe, any of them. Excellent. Uh, getting away from wrestling now, your favorite book? The Little Prince. Excellent. Favorite TV show? Wild Wild West. Wonderful. Conrad was the shit. <laughs> uh, favorite film? Uh, Wizard of Oz. Oh, brilliant. When I was a kid, I would put the VHS tape in, watch it, rewind it to the start, and then watch it again. I was obsessed with it. I have the film memorized from beginning to end, and I will still watch it if it ever shows up on TV. And for the early part of my life, I was scared to death of flying monkeys. <laughs> Me too. Uh, getting away from the arts now, Bill. Favorite food? Uh, lobster. Nice. 
favorite place to eat on the road? Uh, pretty much any any great steakhouse or sushi. Nice. Uh, not sure if you're much of a drinker, Bill, but the next one is your favorite alcoholic beverage. Uh, I only drink beer. I don't drink hard liquor. Uh, I can I like wine, but primarily bullshit wine like sangria. But um, beer, I can have the worst possible beer, and it is still my favorite beverage. And I drink the worst possible beer because it's cheap. Yeah, that's that's what I do too. When I get good beer, I always just go for the no, cheap, go, nasty option. Good, when I go out, I'll drink good beer. And I will point out for those people that want to drink good beer and locale beer, Guinness, because while it looks like it's going to be high high calorie, it's actually not. It's actually a low calorie beer. Then most people don't know that. Right. Cool. I didn't know that, and now I do. Uh, Second last one, Bill. Favorite female body part? Favorite female what? Body part. Body part? Yeah. Breasts. Probably breasts. Excellent. Uh, not not going to argue with that one. And the last one, Bill. I don't know if you've you've said one curse word on this show, but the last one is always your favorite curse word. I. Uh, the utility word, and it is a go-to word for people like myself and Jim Cornette, is the word fuck. Because <laughs> it, when you have a discussion about wrestling, you have to talk about the fucking shit, and then you do the fucking move, and then you fucking do this, and then you fucking do that. Fuck. So that is the word, and it is used liberally when you uh, critique a match, call a match, or do a match. The uh, By the way, the uh, best word in professional wrestling and the greatest utility word, a question you have not asked, is the word gimmick. Gimmick is everything. You can use a gimmick. You can have a gimmick. You can be a gimmick. You can say, I went to the gimmick to get the gimmick. Then I wrote on the gimmick to find a gimmick, and that was gimmicked. <laughs> Awesome, bro. Uh, well, Bill Behrens, I just want to thank you for your time uh, to talk to me today about uh, some of your journey in wrestling. I know I didn't ask about all of the things that you've done because we'd be here for hours on end. You've done so much. You've been to so many places and you've helped so many people. Um, so I just want to let you know from all the way over here in the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia, that I hope that you are so proud of everything that you've accomplished in the wrestling business. Thank you very much. And I'll end this by thanking you. Uh, really good. I enjoyed the interview and I encourage people. I hadn't mentioned this. I encourage people to follow and watch and it's on the fight TV, uh, the new NWA Billy Corgan's version uh, strongly recommend the product. Uh, we just kicked butt in St. Louis with two great pay-per-views and a TV taping that's airing now. Uh, 73rd anniversary, Ric Flair appeared, new champion in Trevor Murdoch, the first big time all women's pay-per-view. And uh, I encourage every, everyone to check all that stuff out. It's all good shit. Excellent, bro. Yeah, me and my friend uh, Daniel, we, we got the uh, NWA 73 and watched it and we thoroughly enjoyed it. Not sure where Bill's gone. I think he's had a phone call uh, take place. But I want to thank you all for watching here. The Insider's Edge podcast on the WCWA Network in conjunction with Blue White Hustle. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California Fury, here with the hilarious Bill Behrens. And we will see you next time. Thank you.